Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day, and today... This is part two of episode 55, which is all about Savage Worlds. It features additional bits and pieces that didn't quite fit in the first part. It's not a supplement, it's more like an extra deck of cards that you didn't realise you needed until you got it. Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, has often said, and he says it again later, that Savage World really comes alive once you have a setting. Without a clear idea of where you'll be adventuring, it's harder to piece together all the different rules and subsystems that come with the game. In this part of the episode, we explored some of the settings that we've played in, highlighting the features and what we like about them, from Deadlands to Slipstream and beyond. Savage Worlds has a lot to offer RPGs focused on action-adventure. We also have a couple of guests to help us. First, Christian Nome from Night Arrant Media, who has developed Titan Effect, which has just been released in a declassified edition so that it's compatible with the Savage Worlds Adventure Edition and the new Superpowers supplement for it. Titan Effect is a game where the players are secret agents with biogenetic powers fighting a secret war in our contemporary world, with forces who seek to control the eugenic future of humanity. Christian tells the story of how the concept turned into an RPG. Blythe faces the Games Master screen as we review, apparently at random, some of the best settings that we played in. We also talk about a new review that tackles the thorny issue of us recording some segments in an actual pub. Some people really struggle to hear what we're saying above the hubbub, while others enjoy the atmos. I'm not sure if we resolve the issue, but this is a non-wig episode. A non-wig episode. All that will become clear later. We also have an addition to our ever-expanding Appendix G, the books, films, TV that inspired us back in the day. Member of the Australian chapter of the Grog Squad, Michael Butler, asks, Who watches The Watchmen? But enough of this, I have a cold. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box! Okay, welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards, how our gaming of the past have influenced the players that we are today. And joining me in the Zoom of role-playing rambling, I've got Christian Nome from Night Arrant Media. Hello there, Christian. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Where in the world are you, uh, Christian? Where are you, where you beaming in from? I'm, I'm living in Quebec City. But uh, I'm originally from Paris in France. So so what's your background in role-playing? How did you start in role-playing back in uh, Paris? 
Well, as a player, I discovered uh, RPGs uh, at 12 years old, and I started with uh, Star Wars RPG. I was a huge Star Wars fan at that time, and when I discovered that there was an RPG, I hadn't any knowledge about the uh, war playing games before that. So uh, when I opened my first RPG book, it was like, uh, you know, like my true calling, <laughs> I would say. And after that, the, the, the passion for RPGs never left me. So uh, I played a, a, a lot of uh, other RPGs, Tor, Deadlands, uh, Savage Worlds, Shadowrun, Cyberpunk 2020. What's the scene like in uh, Paris? During uh, When I was a ki- uh, teenager, uh, there was a small community. So it's growing bigger and bigger like every, everywhere else because there's a, a huge like small clubs when uh, we gathered and played the uh, RPGs or only with friends, you know, during the weekends. And uh, we played a lot of different RPGs because uh, we, uh, we had a, a thirst for... Uh, for to discover new uh, new game, new new universe, and there had been a lot of great uh, French RPG designers. Uh, so uh, we, I played a lot of uh, French RPGs. RPGs that I loved the, the most was Nephilim. It was uh, it's a it still exists today. It's a esoteric uh, RPG when you play uh, some sort of uh, angels that reincarnate. In different timeline, the goal of the game is like to attain some kind of state uh, called the, the Agartha, and uh, and you explore uh, a lot of uh, stuff. You're hunted by Templars and uh, all kind of stuff. Uh, there were also Innomine uh, Satanis and Magna Veritas, which was a game where you could play angels or demons, and it was uh, very. It was very popular in France, and it was uh, also very politically incorrect. I know uh, with Nephilim, um, that's a Chaosium game, wasn't it? That uh, didn't they uh, do that in the nineties? Uh, yes, they did it in the nineties. Uh, it was v- it was popular in France and uh, the rest of Europe, I think. But I don't. Uh, each time I speak to people uh, in the US about Nephilim. Uh, Nobody heard about it. You mentioned Deadlands and uh, Savage Worlds, and we're looking at Savage Worlds. So how did you get into uh, Savage Worlds? Well, I get into Savage Worlds with uh, Deadlands. I started playing it when it, for, uh, when it was first released uh, in the 90s. Uh, and uh, it's one of, the, one of my favorite uh, RPG. A few years after, uh, when I was looking for a new edition of Deadlands, uh, I discovered that there was uh, something new called Savage Worlds that was using some of Deadlands rules and making it more simple and fun to use. And uh, when I started reading it, uh, I was just amazed by how great the rules were to, uh, to create any setting you wanted. There was a, a big emphasis on pop settings, but you could do uh, almost anything, you know, uh, fantasy, uh, modern settings, uh, historical, science fiction. And uh, so that, that's uh, that's how I, I discovered it. What was it in, initially that appealed to you about Deadlands? Because we, we've been uh, playing quite a bit of uh, Deadlands and that was uh, really our way into uh, Savage Worlds as well. 
Deadlands, that's not, uh, that, that wasn't difficult for me. I'm a huge uh, fan of uh, Sergio Leone. So uh, I watched a lot of uh, Western spaghettis uh, when I was a kid and, and teenager. So uh, discovering Deadlands was like seeing that kind of, uh, of Westerns with everything else that I loved, like steampunk, uh, Tulu horror, and uh, all kind of stuff mixed up together. And uh, I just loved it, you know. It uh, and I when I when I introduced it to uh, to my friends in France, uh, <laughs> they were all fans of the of the setting, and we uh, started. Uh, I started with a one shot, and it became a long uh, campaign uh, after that. And and you mentioned the rules, and it was the rules that appealed to you. So, how soon after discovering Savage World did you start creating your own settings? Well, when I discovered Savage World, I started to uh, right away to uh, to do my own settings because uh, you know I had a lot of a lot of stories or comic books that I loved that I wanted to adapt uh, right away. Uh, I think the first adventure that I wrote for uh, for Savage Worlds uh, for my friends was uh, a convert an adaptation of uh, the anime Cowboy Bebop, and it was perfect for it because because very simple and fast to uh, to adapt and uh, and to play with it and and uh, how soon did uh titan effects start to emerge is is that a fairly new one or did you explore some of the ideas of titan effect uh, early on uh no not at that point uh titan effect uh, started very differently because uh i was only doing rpgs as a game master and player but uh, at that point, I had no ambition to become an RPG creator. But I had ambitions to become a screenwriter and comic book writer. And I was working on this, uh, this universe that didn't have any name at that point, uh, mixing uh, cyberpunk, biopunk, all kinds of uh, video games and anime ideas that I loved. And I wanted to put all that together. At first, it was some kind of big mess. But, you know, there was the, the, the DNF Titan effect was was there. After a few years of working uh, on that uh, project, at first, I tried to develop it as an animated series project. It didn't work out because I had uh, some setbacks with different producers who were, weren't very serious about it. Then I started to work on a comic book project. And uh, again, it failed because the main artist uh, I was working with uh, let me down at the last minute. And uh, I already invested some money in it and a lot of time. And I had to do all over again. And uh, at that point, I was kind of tired of having all these setbacks and failures. And uh, I just needed to have something finished, you know, finished product. That's something that I haven't managed so far to do. And uh, one of my friends, in France, uh, started to uh, to give me the idea of telling me why are, are you not making this into an RPG, like a Savage World setting. It popped up like that, and uh, that's how I started to adapt Titan Effect into a Savage World setting. So it started as a, another project that transferred into this. You should give a, a pitch um, for our listeners who may not have uh, experienced a Titan Effect. So, uh, what's what's the pitch for the game? So the pitch is a Titan Fake is a genre bending uh, setting mixing uh, spy thriller, biopunk, superheroes. Uh, it's a world where players are plunged uh, into a world with uh, conspiracies, uh, secret organization, 
bioengineered creatures and uh, psychic phenomena. And this world, uh, similar to ours, but different with uh, all the things that I mentioned earlier. Players play uh, spies gifted with special abilities. Some have psychic powers, others have been bioengineered, created or modified. And they try to uh, basically to save the world from chaos uh, without losing their, their own soul in the process. It's a, it's a setting where the, the frontier between good and evil is often blurred. Yeah, that's that's very true. What struck me about the uh, setting is that element of espionage. The clandestine uh, behaviour and tradecraft is going to uh, serve you well as you do these adventures. Exactly. I heard of it because I was interested in the game uh, Psyworld. I don't know if you remember that uh, game from Fantasy Games Unlimited in the early 80s. And, I uh, never, I never heard of it uh, when I started working on Titan Effect, but uh, a few people mentioned it to me after I released Titan Effect uh, a few years ago. Yeah, and uh, people said, "Oh, well, if you like uh, Cyworld, then you'll love uh, Titan Effect." And it, and it's true. I think it's um, obviously uh, it's quite underdeveloped in uh, Cyworld, but this is a fully worked out. Uh, setting with all different factions as well, isn't there? So in Titan Effect, there's a, a secret war called the, the Great Game. It's a it's a direct reference to a term used in the Cold War uh, during uh, with different countries uh, fighting each other and spying on each other. In this Great Game, the goal is to control human evolution uh, biologically. There's different factions. Uh, fighting each other in the secret war. So the first one is the Olympians. It's some kind of Illuminati group uh, controlling the the world, especially it had a great influence on the banking, on the, they control the military, uh, different intelligence agencies, and of course, a lot of multinational companies. There's uh, Ares, who's a private military company, uh, who's working for the Olympians and uh, who's serving as their... Uh, uh, secret guard, though they do all their dirty work, and they also uh, they also charge to create biogmented uh, soldiers. So some of the soldiers can transform into a werebeast, like a werewolf or werebeer, and others or have been enhanced with animal DNA, and they're uh, so they have physical traits of animal and humans together. And they have different abilities according to the DNA that they've been enhanced with. Uh, after that, you have Typhoon, who is a bioterrorist organization with a post-human agenda. Basically, they're trying to uh, rewrite human DNA and create a new species because they believe that uh, humanity won't survive what's coming, uh, whether it's climate change and uh, all kinds of nasty stuff coming. So they believe that uh, to survive, they have to change humanity to make it evolve into different species. You have also the Directorate, who's a Russian secret organization who's trying to uh, to create um, some kind of new Russian empire dominated by psychic and eventually after that to dominate the rest of the world. And you have uh, also a lot of other different minor factions that uh, you know gravitate around these major factions. What I like about these uh, factions is uh, usually in role-playing games, when you've got factions, they're usually highly exaggerated and, you know, there's not a lot of subtlety with them. Whereas in th this, they, uh, they are interesting. And um, I think a lot of the adventures 
uh, that I have experience of about uh, uncovering some of those uh, agencies that are at work behind the scenes. Yes, I try to keep them grounded as possible and to not make in, making them, uh, you know, absolutely evil. Uh, each one of these organizations have a reason to do what they're doing. Uh, of course, term is guided, but their uh, their reason can make some sense sometimes. So the players work for uh, an organization called the Spear, who's uh, trying to fight against all this faction because uh, the Spear thinks that it's its role to preserve the world and protect it from all these uh, evil factions. And uh, sometimes the characters can, uh, the players can be forced to make some difficult choice or sometimes even question their own um, loyalty to the spear because they realize that uh, maybe the, their enemies uh, in front of them uh, have a point about doing uh, what they're doing. And you've just released uh, on PDF uh, the next edition, haven't you? The declassified edition. So... How does that change from the um, first edition? Well, uh, when I released Titan Effect, the first edition, uh, it were, I had really bad timing because right after that, uh, Pinnacle Entertainment Group released uh, Savage World Adventure Edition, which is the latest edition of Savage Worlds. And it changed a lot of things. So uh, at, that, at the time, I released the free conversion guide to, to make the the, the setting compatible with that new uh, edition of Savage Worlds. But uh, when I heard that they were making a new Superpowers Companion, because Savage, Titan Effect used Savage Worlds core rules and the Superpowers Companion, I had to, to think about either I was updating the game, the, the setting, or making some kind of 1.5 edition uh, where, uh, which would be fully compatible with this new Superpowers Companion and which will also allow me to add some new stuff or add some stuff that I that I wanted to put into the setting book into the first uh, for the first edition and I couldn't I released the declassified the declassified uh, edition the new thing that there's in it uh, there's a, a new short comic book that is used as a, some kind of opening scene the eight page comic book with a, a big action sequence like a James Bond movie uh, there's rules to play by augmented soldier uh, as peer uh, agents. That's something that a lot of people ask when I release the first edition of Titan Effect. I also added the spear unit guides, uh, which is some kind of uh, it's an alternate version of campaign IDs, which basically players work for one of the spear units, and each one of the units has different purpose and roles. So Give it, according to the game master's campaign, uh, there's a lot of different units that can suit the, the players and the game master. So there's unit who is more specialized in uh, uh, rescue operations, another more involved in uh, traditional espionage and investigation, another one was more action oriented. So there's a unit for every kind of taste. Yeah, and uh, those units can help uh, shape some of the adventures that are possible. Um, exactly. Yeah, and um, you know, I I find that it's uh, good for one shots because it is uh, very often uh, mission based, isn't it? 
what what's your plans with it are you going are there uh, some adventures uh, planned um, uh, campaigns that kind of thing so yes i have uh, several adventures that uh, that i'd like to uh, to write for titan effect uh, there's also a campaigns uh, book that i've started to work on i have to juggle between different projects so it, it's taking me a lot of times and of course the classified for the classified i had to put all that on hold for uh, for a while but now I, i'm working on it again i'm also i also started to work on the idea of a spin-off of titan effect which would take place uh, further in the future uh, with uh, some kind of post post-apocalyptic setting mixing cyberpunk, post-apocalyptic. Uh, one of the main inspiration for that is the manga Apple Seed. But uh, for the moment, it's still just a, a concept that I've started to work on, but uh, it won't be released uh, anytime soon. I think what um, the game does as well is really bring out how uh, Savage Worlds deals with uh, superpowers. So uh, do you want to talk about that and how uh, the superpowers work within uh, Titan Effect? Uh, it was kind of natural because uh, the idea that I had for Titan Effect at first, uh, it was very superhero oriented because the characters could do a lot of uh, powerful stuff that you see in manga or, or anime. And uh, when I read the Superpowers Companion, it was a natural fit to adapt uh, Titan Effect uh, because the, the way it works, you have the, the powers or more effects and the, the, the power itself is, uh, is more like what you, you put around it. So uh, you can have a, a power attack that can be anything from uh, using claws, uh, uh, horns, or uh, you know, spitting venom or, or that kind of stuff. As I wanted it to be grounded as possible, with uh, the Superpowers Companion, you have different level of power campaign. And uh, the street level campaign was something that was, uh, that was perfect for Savage World because characters could earn enough power to, to have something interesting. But at the same time, they wouldn't be too powerful to unbalance a game. It's got a more horizontal structure, hasn't it, than uh, some games where you know it, it levels raise vertically. You can build characters by having additional effects and additional features. So I think it really lends itself to uh, a superpower game. Yeah, when the players start, the characters are not all powerful. The, there's a, a learning curve. So uh, they have a, a certain number of powers when they start uh, the character and uh, as they progress in, in the in the campaign they become more powerful and discover how to use their power more efficiently and it's really good that start of the first edition and, and as you say in the second edition it uh, it's grounded itself back in that comic book uh, setting i mean do you know that um the role-playing game's taken off have you got plans to fulfill your original ambition to uh, create some other media around this? Oh, I definitely have plans to do that. I'm uh, actually working with a producer to try to uh, to make uh, an anime project. So something that I initially wanted to do with Titan Effect. And uh, for the moment, I can't say anything besides that uh, I'm working with some, someone very serious and who have a, a lot of interesting connections in Hollywood. So hopefully uh, this will lead somewhere. 
and I'm also planning to uh, continue working on the on the comic book. Yeah, I look forward to seeing that uh, development because it it is a, it is a great setting, and uh, I'm really thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Something that I always wanted to do with Titan Effect is the that the RPG was the the base for the the world, but uh, everything that I developed in parallel, like a comic book project or an anime, could be tied to the RPG. You know, it's not like a mere adaptation. It's more like a, a, it's a transmedia project. So every new med- medium expands the world a different way with a different point of view and characters. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how it develops because I've enjoyed playing it. So I'm happy to, to hear that. <laughs> it's great to have you on. Thank you very much, Christian. Yeah, thanks to you. Games Master Screen! Welcome to the Zoom of Role Playing Rambling where Blythe is about to face the Games Master's screen. I've got a table which features some of the favourite settings of Savage Worlds, and we'll roll apparently at random on the table and explore some of them. But before we go into that, we've had a, we've had a review, and you know I like reading these reviews because they can often explain what we're doing better than we can. And this is one from uh, the United States of America. I want to... Read it out because we could have a chat about some of the practicalities of uh, recording this podcast. The noise, three stars. This would easily be five stars, but honestly, I would like to hear what these two have to say. But the fact that half of every episode is recorded in one of England's noisiest pubs, it's ridiculous. We can't hear you over the loud music and drunken blatherings and noisy doors and the, oh God, the everything. I've been quiet about this for so long, but enough is enough. <laughs> I would agree. I think it could be a five-star podcast if we didn't record it in a pub and have huge amounts of alcohol while we <laughs> recorded it. I think, does that know what it means? <laughs> That's my view. It could, it could easily be five stars if it wasn't for our drunken blatherings, which yeah. knocks it down to a three. So somebody has made that point that you know you should be careful what you wish for because if you clear out the background noise, you might have to listen to what we're actually saying and realize. Yeah, exactly. At least rubbish. you can tune you, you can tune us out and listen to I don't know Gary Neiman or something on the jukebox, can't you? You know there is this <laughs> there is that it, benefit. <laughs> it's the practicalities, isn't it, of uh, recording this? So we have to do it in stolen moments when we can. Um, to fit it in yeah. so it's it's either after work where we're in one of those rooms which is like a storeroom isn't it which is huge and hollow and echoey, echoey and yeah. uh it, it's a vast empty space full of boxes i think as well it's fair to say we don't record in england's noisiest pub <laughs> we don't we try and record in england's quietest pub I, I suppose that's what's odd about it isn't it really that when we're recording it in the pub it's quiet so it might be uh early afternoon and the pub is empty and we're in the snug of the last gallery and it's actually quite quiet it's only when you listen to the recording that the slamming of that noisy toilet door is a bit annoying when we're recording it's not annoying you You could say it's an oasis of calm that plays a lot of oasis (laughs) you could yeah yeah at an acceptable level you know but you know (laughs) I, well, you can't please all the people all the time, can you? No, we I, like record. We like recording it in the pub. 
that, yeah. that's what really matters, isn't it? We yeah. like it because we're in the pub. It's great. I accept, though, I accept, though, for new listeners, it must be hard to tune in. I mean, we can do it over Zoom like we're doing now, but it means that I, I have to keep asking you questions as I'm interviewing you, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, well it, it, it does, like, like <laughs> what you just did that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave long yeah. pregnant pauses in the hope that you'll step in. The hope I'll step in, yeah. 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 And we don't yeah, talk I, like I, that. I we don't talk like that, do we? We no, talk no. over each other. And... Yeah, if you want a bit of spontaneity and, and that kind of thing, you have to put up with the pub. Yeah. That guy that guy could be on the panel for the Ennis, couldn't he? You put your name forward and it's all, oh, that crap, it's done in a pub. He'd pair of idiots in a pub. He'd be right, wouldn't he? But you'll never get an Ennis, so just resign yourself to that. There is an alternative. We could go to Weatherspoons, who famously don't play music or sell decent beer. We could go there, couldn't we? That'd be quieter. It would be quieter in Weatherspoons, but yeah, that that might be a rather hostile environment <laughs> in a Weatherspoons in Bolton. It might be the last podcast we ever do. Yeah, no, no problem with the noisy toilet door because they just do it where they are, don't they? So anyway, <laughs> let's let's uh, move on because uh, there is a lot to cover because we're covering uh, settings with these settings. We're going to have to be quite tight with them because. Um, you could cover there's a lot to cover and you could actually dedicate a podcast to each of them really because it's so rich and broad and full of features uh, for gaming that it is possible to do that i think yeah. as well it, it's fair to say that i uh, we talked about this before haven't we that when i first encountered savage worlds i didn't quite know what to do with it and it and it's only when you get into the settings that Savage Worlds as a generic system kind of falls into place a little bit, I think. It kind of falls into, well, it did for me anyway, it kind of clicked with my brain when I dropped it into a setting and thought, ah, right, okay, so some of these bits in the game aren't that relevant. Other bits are more relevant. Um, and also within the settings, there are there are little subsystems, aren't there, as well, which we might get on to talking about. So there are these subsystems within the settings that using the cards and using bits of the rules that try and enhance elements of those settings. I think, you know, the emphasis on all of these uh, settings is predominantly on action. And mm. it is an action-focused game, isn't it? That is uh, what, it, what, it, what it looks for. Let's uh, roll on the table anyway. Here okay. goes. Let's. Uh, I've got a wild die as well. So let's see how we go. Whoa! We scored an ace. We're exploding away here because we've got deadlines. <laughs> deadlines. Course, yeah. yeah, deadlines. Which was the first setting? I think it was the first setting I ran Savage Worlds in. Deadlines. First one. Um, is it the first one we played? I, I can't remember the order of this. Whether. We play. I think we may have played some uh, 2000 AD uh, Savage Worlds before we actually played Deadlands with Gaz yeah. from the Smart Party. Yeah, 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 yeah. We played it with Gaz Ransom, didn't he? And then I, I got into it and I ran to the first. It was the first Savage Worlds that I, I ran. I think it's. I think it's the only Savage Worlds I've run. Haven't I? I think mm-hmm. I've only ever run Savage Worlds as Deadlands. Um, but Deadlands is a great setting. Really good setting. The Wild West, isn't it? So, you you know, what's not to like about the Wild West? Um, and every time I've played it with people, they all kind of connect to it that 
it, it's laden with all those cliches from Westerns. So it's very, very easy to create a character. And it's very, very easy to kind of come up with storylines and NPCs and situations and draw on all that wealth of stuff from Westerns that, you know, you watched as a kid on the TV. Because I think when we were kids, the TV was awash with Westerns, wasn't it? You know, because they were all made in the kind of 50s and 60s, weren't they? Then all ended up on telly in the 70s and 80s. So I can remember Monday night, you know, as a kid, there was always some Western on with Clint Eastwood, you know, John Wayne, that kind of thing. So you kind of draw on those, all those cliches, tropes from Westerns. So it's a great setting from that point of view. And also, it again, coming back to this thing of character creation in Savage Worlds, when you first encounter Savage Worlds, it gives you a character creation system that has all these hindrances and all these... Um, edges and things like that bewildering is the wrong word but there's a lot to it and you think all right so i could i can just pick these things and create a character and perhaps you don't quite know what you would do with it but of course when i discovered deadlands it's much easier then because you look at the western and you think right okay i get it i'm in a western let's think about those characters from westerns and then it's very easy to construct a character using those hindrances and those edges once you've got a setting to position the character in, I suppose. Am I right in saying in the new edition of it? Because you went big on that new edition, didn't you, on the Kickstarter? And the new edition, you get more archetypes, don't you? You get more playbooks, if you like, and versions yeah, of yeah. Um, characters. Well, the, with the new version, I, I found it's a bit, lighter on the background so there is this story in, in deadlands the setting for those who don't know is it's the wild west um but it's a wild west where certain uh without going too much west certain characters um have kind of opened a, a gate into hell and brought these evil spirits into the world who are trying to manipulate and creating levels of fear amongst the population. And when the levels of fear become so high, then these reckoners, as they're called, will be able to step into the world. Um, that's the, the basic gist of it. Um, the new version is a bit lighter on the setting, on that, not the setting, but lighter on that kind of background stuff, which is no bad thing, really. But, but there's more archetypes, isn't there? I know that there's more choices when you presented the latest yes. version to us. You gave yeah, us more do, choices. Yeah. I, I, suppose, I, I suppose that's what I mean. They, they, they seem to have kind of put an emphasis on playing it rather than the background, if you see what I mean, Yeah. in the new version. The new version's a lot, a lot slimmer and slicker in terms of the way it presents itself than, than the, uh, I mean, not the original, because I think there's been several versions of it, haven't there? The original Deadlands wasn't Savage Worlds, was it? But I had, I've got copies of the, the edition prior to the new edition. Well, we played some of that, didn't we? It uses an, a subsystem, as you mentioned, like for um, quick draw. I seem to remember that it was like a poker game, wasn't it? Yeah, in, in the, the edition previously, uh, they, have, they have rules for gunfights. So again, that's the thing about a little subsystem. So there's this this rule, you know, good to classic gunfight where you face down an opponent in the in the street kind of thing. And uh, in this edition prior to this one, it was done as like poker hands. So you deal cards, and the poker hands would decide ultimately who who drew first. And the new system, the new the new version does a similar thing. It's a bit it's a bit simpler, 
Um, but it allows you to use things like taunting and intimidating and that kind of thing before you draw to get an advantage on uh, your opponent. So it is like a little game within a game when you get a gunfight. It's quite uh, quite exciting the way that, that they kind of build that into the game. It's not just a case of roll initiative and who shoots first. You do this thing where you got you get cards. When I th- keep your cards close to your chest until it's time to draw, and that decides who goes first, who shoots first, rather. What I find that it, it's quite difficult with it is a reason for your characters to be together because mm. the archetypes are so... So I played a Revenant, didn't I? The, um, what they called? What um, they called? Y- yeah. Harold. Harold, that's it. When you die, when your character, if your character dies in Deadlands, you can make a roll to see if you come back uh, as an undead cowboy kind of thing. Part of the fear thing, isn't it, that the dead are, are right? It's not. It's not all zombies. That that's wrong. There are monsters in it, but all the monsters are a product of these evil spirits that have been let into the world. So the Harold inspired uh, Deadlands. I think it was the image of having the Harold mm-hmm. on the front of cover. Yeah. It's what drove the game to be produced. You know, these are uh, characters that have been killed, and uh, they're maintained by this spirit that's uh, inhabits them and can sometimes get the better of them so you have a usage dice that diminishes over time and um eventually you could get possessed or taken away and it and one of the hindrances is you've got to satisfy that uh, spirit and that might involve well it does involve like having to murder someone um every, every source so a great concept for a character until you put it alongside, um, I don't know, the rhinestone kid or, you know, some... Uh, <laughs> why why yeah. on earth would a bunch of characters come around a, a figure like that? You can see, well, like, the high, have, plane, it, high plains drifter. The, yeah, yeah. But it does, have, it, it does have um, certain agencies in it, doesn't it? That And the idea, like, there's the Twilight Legion, in which are a secret society of people who are kind of committed to sorting out this problem with the monsters and that kind of thing, suppressing these monsters and this these fear. Because it does this thing as well, doesn't it, with fear levels. So each community has a fear level. Um, by your characters doing stuff, the fear level can go up or down, depending on how successful they are. So I suppose behind it, there is this idea, isn't there, of investigators is possibly the wrong word, but a group of vigilantes or unofficial lawmen, that kind of thing, that go around investigating these problems. And that's one of the ideas. You don't have to do it like that, but that's one of the ideas that keeps the game going, I suppose, that you're, you know, say one of the Twilight Legion, one of these secret... Because in the Headstone Hill one that we ran, that I ran, you were part of the Twilight Legion, weren't you? So your, your character was harrowed and... The Legion felt it was useful to have you as part of the group because you might offer certain insights and benefits. So whilst the group might not like you particularly, I'll be a bit worried about you. They're not just a bunch of random people hanging out together. They are. There is an organisation behind it. And that's one of the things that Deadlands has in it. In fact, I think it's... I might be wrong here, but I, I think in the new version, that is brought to bear a little bit more with those groups and organisations, the idea that you're part of one of those. And I think it needs to be because all of the archetypes and all of the um, 
tropes from uh, cowboys are about the individual, aren't they? They're, it's not really. Maybe the Wild Bunch is an excep- exception, but there are not yeah. many um, films or, or features that feet around uh, groups of cowboys being together. I just remember in that early game that we played with Gaz and Baz, we sort of had an existential crisis of uh, wondering what <laughs> what were we doing, why were we doing it, why were we going town to town causing mayhem. What was the purpose? What were we doing here? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think in the, well, in, in the Headstone Hill one, you are actually recruited, aren't you, by the Twilight Legion. You're actually given a job, aren't you, where one of the agents has gone missing and you are also agents. So it's a little bit more direct, I think, in terms of uh, what what you're supposed to be doing and how you're supposed to be doing it. But you're right, yeah, it, it could be a could be a problem because... As you say, they are kind of, kind of disparate. You've got things like Chai Master, haven't you? Kind of Kung Fu, Chinese immigrant sort of character. You've got them, and then you've got the Harrod, and then you've got other bits. And you think, yeah, why, why would they all be together? Why would they all be together? Mind you, it is a world with zombies and evil spirits and magic. So and weird science. That's yeah. the least of your worries. I have to say, every time I've played it, I've had tremendous fun uh, doing it. Uh, it does lend itself to as we keep saying about Savage World action. Yeah, it's it is it is good fun to play it. It's easy to run and easy to come up with ideas for and it's easy to run the pre written adventures. Simply because, as I said earlier, I think the idea of the Western are a really good uh, adventure setting. And yet there's not that many of them about in the role playing world. I know someone will write in there with a list of twenty, but but in terms of obvious choices, there's not not that many, is there, really? There's not, but I would argue as we go through this list that many of the settings for Savage Worlds have Western sensibilities in that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, I mean, you can say, can't you? I mean, you, you can say that about lots of fantasy and sci-fi settings that they have a Western sensibility. You know, like Star Wars, famously, that, that's a bit like a Western. All, all sorts of games are like, have that sensibility, but there's not many that are actually westerns no. as setting set set in the western setting and so i think it's easy to run because like i said earlier you can draw on all those kind of cliches and tropes and characters from westerns and i th- and i think the reason why games do have that kind of uh, undercurrent is because of the lawlessness and the moral certainties that westerns have isn't it i think that's yeah why yeah. it's appealing to gamers because there's a sort of anything goes within reason sensibility about it. Yeah, and and you can yeah yeah there's a, there's, more, more, there's moral certainties and also you can break the law and shoot people with a sort of sense of moral certainty, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You can you can do stuff and I suppose get away with it because you can, you can run from one town to the next, can't you? As an outlaw, and people whenever I play it, people want. People want a gunfight. You know, they want to go into a town where there's a crooked lawman who runs the town. They want a gunfight. They want a train robbery. They want a bank robbery. They want all those things. And so it's very easy to kind of provide that for people. <laughs> people kind of naturally enjoy it, I think, for that reason. Let's uh, roll on the table again. Okay, so uh, this next one on the list is Slipstream. So oh, Slipstream yeah. is a retro... Flash Gordon type Saturday matinee in space. Cowboys in space, isn't it? 
Um, there is a Flask Garden companion, isn't there, to uh, Savage Worlds? But this is very much its own uh, galaxy, its own uh, universe of characters and different uh, alien species across the uh, across the galaxy. And we completed a complete campaign with this over a period of years. And it is great fun, and it does draw out all the great things about Savage Worlds that we've mentioned. It's done as a Flash Garden style, you know, 1930s or 40s kind of sci-fi, isn't it? That's the way it's done. And, and you've think, got Queen. You've got Queen. There's a there's a big villain. It's kind of Ming the Merciless type villain, isn't there? And Queen Anathraxa. Anathraxa, who, yeah. Who is, but yeah. I, I thought she's like a, a Servalan, isn't she? In uh, Blake. She's, she's a bit. She's a cross between Ming the Merciless and Servalan, isn't she? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was, he was a great kind of villain in it. And again, I suppose like Deadlands, it's giving you a. That's another parallel, isn't it? It's giving you. A, a very strong villain. So in Deadlands, you've got the Reckoners and the, you know, whilst it's not a specific villain, um, although there are there are some very, very strong specific villains in Deadlands. This does a similar thing, doesn't it? It presents the players with a, a force for e- an unambiguous force for evil in the universe that is the enemy. So it's not an ambiguous thing. She's a, she's a baddie. And she must be stopped. That's the gist of that campaign, isn't it? There's no, it's not room for negotiation. And the planetary system is, again, very broadly drawn. So you've got the robot planet, you've got the fire planet, you've got the ice planet, you've got the uh, ocean planet. So yeah, you've got and you've got the different peoples, and you've got the insect, the insect people, and the bird people, and the this and that. It is very, you know, yeah, very broadly drawn. And for years, I, out of devilment, really, um, picked a character, didn't I? I picked a character that I thought would be good fun, (laughs) not realising that I'd be stuck with this character for years. Um, I I played a a Septosarian, and a Septosarian essentially is a six-foot-long slug with a single foot that can move quite quickly and in moments of stress emits a noxious cloud of gas there was a farting slug in space what for you over because we played it over a period of time i was able to work through the hindrances because one of the things is i was all thumbs so couldn't use guns Mm. particularly well and so i found that i had to get into the thick of combat in order to emit my noxious gas to uh, shake the people around me but i was incredibly vulnerable to being attacked by these anathraxan Warriors, yeah. Well, I played a cyclops, as in PSI psychic cyclops, which is like a one-eyed, this kind of short, stubby, one-eyed character who had psychic powers. Which I quite enjoyed. It was about being a wizard, really. I didn't, I didn't quite pick it for that reason, but but ultimately, you, you become like the wizard with psychic powers, where you can do all sorts of stuff. Um, and it's, it was interesting playing that character actually because. I think one of the peculiar things about Savage Worlds is because you just build your character and you pick edges and hindrances, you can always pick edges which are uh, special power. You can pick a powers edge, can't you? So it's got like magic, weird science, psychic power. So you could pick uh, a power edge 
for your character. And what's interesting is at first, when you start playing Savage Worlds, right at the beginning, when your characters are beginning, it seems like those characters with the power edges are more powerful. But what's interesting about it is as, as you progress, if you've got powers, you realize how the system makes you spend your advances on the powers to make yourself good at stuff. And it, you can't spend it on some of the other stuff that people have got. So, for example, my, my Cyclops character was quite powerful until he ran out of power points. And then he was kind of quite weak. And that initially, that wasn't the case. Right at the beginning, that wasn't the case. I had psychic powers and no one else did. And that we were all the same, but I had psychic powers and that was great. I felt more powerful. But the game system does quite a good job of, of giving you that decision. You can still have powers, but they'll be quite weak unless you spend your advances on, if you spend your advances on your stats or your skills, or you can spend point your advances on powers but your advances are going to be less on your stats and over time that was is interesting to play someone like that over a long time because you realize the system is quite well balanced in the long run it doesn't seem like it at first because to have a power edge means yeah i can do magic and no one else can and we're all we're all pretty much the same but i but i can do magic but eventually it does level out a bit and that was the interesting thing about Slipstream, to see that come into play and kick in. We, we didn't run it, did we? It was Steve who ran the game, complete with Starfleet battles and a cast of thousands. We were at to mow our way through. There were some great epic moments, <laughs> diffusing gigantic robotic spiders. It uses the uh, plot point uh, approach, doesn't it? Which is one of the innovations of uh, Savage Worlds and Pinnacle and yeah. these products that they produce they use this plot point uh, approach which is the it, it's the same for that um one new one for um deadlands wasn't it yeah the headstone well the headstone hill thing is peculiar because it it's plot point uh, and then it also wants to be a sandbox which i'm not quite sure they're necessarily compatible because the way the plot points seem to work is is as the name suggests, it moves you to various plot points, doesn't it? So it it moves you around to various set pieces. Plot point campaigns are very much about set pieces, aren't they? You know, where it moves you from one thing to another. And the horror at Headstone Hill, whilst it's a good campaign, it had plot points in it, but then it also said, oh, let the players do what they want, let them wander around. And you think, well, it doesn't quite work like that, then, does it? Because some of the plot points are going to be missed because the characters decide not to go there or do things. Whereas the plot point thing is very much you do this, then you do that, then you do this, then you do that kind of thing. At least that's the, that's my reading of it anyway. That's my experience of it. Yeah. There's some, there's some flexibility within that, isn't there? But you're right. I think it, the thing in Slipstream, you went from set piece to set piece and Anathraxa was always one step ahead of you, wasn't she? And mm. that went all the way to its ultimate conclusion actually yeah she always she, she always managed to get away as they always did in uh 1930s yeah. <laughs> of course yeah get away from fight another day kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i i've not uh, read a plot point when i've seen pirate set up that's one of the ones fifty thousand fathoms isn't it yeah there's yeah, fifty thousand yeah. fathoms yeah uh, which was the first plot point campaign i think yeah 
Very, very interestingly, the that is very similar to Slipstream. It, it works in almost exactly the same way that you're on a pirate ship and you get sucked down a, a whirlpool, you know, and end up in this other world, which is a bit like a 18th century pirate world, but it's got some other mysterious races in it and that kind of thing. He's got these, these witches, these witches who are the kind of villains who are at the centre of things. But it's like Slipstream, you know, in the same way that Slipstream is where your planet has been sucked through this black hole and popped into a parallel universe, the Slipstream. It's the same kind of thing. Your ship, your pirate ship gets sucked through a whirlpool and pops into a world with different islands and different races and that kind of thing. It's very, very, very similar, almost really the same kind of thing. So pirates, cowboys... And cowboys yeah. in space. This is this is what it's about, isn't it? This is what we want, yeah. right? I think but, what's, I'd say what's interesting as well about Slipstream. Do you know? I think it's interesting that we all played aliens. None of us went for humans. I thought it was very strange that that we all went for alien races, didn't we? And in a way, that setting of Slipstream uh, and Savage Worlds combined makes playing an alien quite appealing. I think. Because sometimes in, in games, playing a non-human, or particularly an alien, can be a bit odd in the, as, a, as a player. I don't know about you, but sometimes you worry you're not going to do them justice because they're supposed to be an alien, aren't they? But it can be tricky from a role-playing perspective. Whereas in Slipstream, because it's very colourful um, and very kind of, like you say, Flash Garden, 1930s sort of stuff, it was very easy to play aliens, wasn't it? No risk of doing it wrong. Felt quite comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was great fun um, to spend a couple of years playing slip, Slipstream. And it's always good to finish a campaign, isn't it? It's always good to get to the end of it. So that was great. Let's uh, roll again. Oh, okay. And um, it's a similar uh, campaign that we've been playing is Necessary Evil. So this is Imagine Suicide Squad on a planet where all the good guys have disappeared and uh, aliens have taken over. So the last bastion of uh, humanity are the evil superheroes that uh, come together to try and defeat this uh, alien invasion. Again, a tremendous setting with great fun. And there's nothing better than playing evil characters, I'd say. I don't know why I'm taken to it. But... <laughs> As you say, yeah. <laughs> so there's two things about this. So it, it, um, that point of uh, playing evil characters, but again, this is one where you're playing characters with superpowers. You're right. I think um, what you're saying about the powers is good how it's handled in Savage Worlds because the way that it describes it is that it's a, uh, it's a horizontal system rather than a vertical system. So as you move up levels, there's only really four levels, isn't there? Like novice, two seasons, and then ultimately veteran. And But among the, but once you're in those levels, you can pick advances that move you along a horizontal scale. And you really see that working when it comes to being superheroes with superpowers. It becomes more acute, I think. It's the first superpower game we've played, isn't it? Yeah, played a bit yeah. of Golden Heroes, haven't we? But we, we played a bit. We played a bit of Golden Heroes, but not a lot of Golden. It's certainly the first superpowered game that we've played over a prolonged period as a campaign. 
you know, superhero role playing has not really been our thing, has it, over the length of time, pre-deep pre freeze and post-deep freeze. It's not really been a thing we've gone for. I'm not really drawn towards uh, superhero games, naturally, I think, even though we got saturation point with TV serials and um, movies about superheroes. I, I'm not naturally drawn towards the superhero genre for games. No, I'm not, I suppose. And, uh, I suppose part of it is with superheroes, you always think, would it, would it all be about fights? Because that's what a lot of superhero stuff is, isn't it? You know, like the powers really come kick in when you're fighting a monster or a giant robot or a supervillain. And it's probably fair to say it is about fights. But as we've said, Savage Worlds does, does action and fights really well. So it's a good uh, mixture, isn't it, to use Savage Worlds for superheroes? Because if superhero role-playing is all about action, Savage Worlds is perfect. I mean, as we've said, if it's got a downside, it's that Savage Worlds doesn't handle some of the most subtler aspects of role-playing particularly well. But if you want to be on the back of a raft with a super-powered um, gun blowing up buildings, fill your boots because it deals with that really well, doesn't it? I mean, Yeah, oh, it's yeah exactly. Yeah. If you want to have an army of minions who are doing your every bidding to uh, bring down the aliens, then do it, come on. Your it's like my character, isn't it? Yeah. I, I picked the super speed thing, didn't I? And and that's been quite, a, there's been a lot of fun, hasn't it? That she, she's really quick. Quantum, my superhero, is, she's really quick. To the point now where I think she can, she's like as fast speed of sound. So she's like faster than the speed of sound. And of course that give, means you're hard to hit and you can also fly at people and punch them. And those things, those that's kind of example where that superpower in some games might be handled in a very, very complicated way. It might be very, very complicated to work in this character that's really fast and that means she's difficult to hit and then she can do extra damage when she hits someone that comes at them at high speed and all that kind of stuff. But Savage Worlds does it really, really well, doesn't it? It's very slick and quick and easy in the way once you get a head around the system building those superpowers in is is very easy and it doesn't slow the combat down does it i think that would always be the thing with superpowers would it just get really really complicated if all these players have different powers and different this and different that and then the, the villains have got powers because in because in necessary evil that is what happens isn't it you know you meet you got five superheroes and we end up meeting other super superheroes or aliens or that kind of thing we're fighting everyone's got powers and yet savage worlds just deal with it really really simply and slickly and, and it it works very well doesn't there's no real delays on the the combat system i've got to mention that my character is kind of a reverse batman isn't he? he's a, a wealthy industrialist um gecko who his hindrance is that every round of combat my first round has to be taken up by an evil monologue so <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is great start every fight by saying what i'm going to do to them and uh boasting about our capabilities yeah but it's great necessary evil because as you say you you're playing the bad guys but what's interest makes it interesting is you're playing the bad guys who have to be the good guys. So it's not as simple as just being the villains. You are actually humanity's last hope, aren't you? So you, you're villains, but you're forced into being heroes, really. Yes. Which makes yeah. it kind of even more fun. 
Yep, and we're continuing that, aren't we? Do continuing the campaign again? Another plot point campaign, uh, which yeah. uh, continues in another few weeks. So I'm looking forward to that. Okay, let's roll again. Okay, the next one is I think this is one that we've experienced as a one shot, but I would love to do more of, and that's a day after Ragnarok, which is Ken Heights setting. Uh, during the Second World War, the Nazis managed to summon the Midgard serpent from the ocean. Truman hit it with nuclear weapons, and now there is a serpent lying across Europe. Completely bonkers uh, setting, but in many ways incredible because it brings together all the stuff that we've been talking about. And because of the appearance of the serpent at Hereford, there is a a cut into the serpent's body because it's light across uh, England. And they're using it to create Orphic tech. So it's kind of caused a, a revolution. And you've got baddies, you've got baddies, you've got Nazis that are still around, and you've still got, you've got the commies as well on the other side of this serpent curtain that's across uh, Europe. So it's got everything you need in big, broad and bright colours uh, with a splash of Howard S. Conan as well. Yeah, I remember when you first described it to me and I thought, that sounds rubbish. That sounds stupid and rubbish. <laughs> Maybe it's your description. I, I wouldn't want to say. But <laughs> but then when we played a one shot and I got hold of it as well, I've got the I've got it as well, the the setting. <laughs> it's just sort of weirdly fantastic. It's it's odd how he gets away with it because it just sounds a stupid bonkers idea where you think, well, come on, there's limits to these things, isn't there? <laughs> there are limits to these this, this fantasy stuff. Can't do that. But it is really, it's really, really good, isn't it? A lot of fun. A lot of fun. And I think it passes the improv rad test. So the improvised radio theatre with dice. Roger on that podcast always says that the mark of a good setting is one where you can get a pen and piece of paper and immediately write down six ideas that you could run in it. And it, it is that kind of setting that you can very quickly formulate ideas of how you could use the different factions that are in there are they going to rebuild society or are they going to try and revive the war and try to settle elements of that there's lots of things going on that uh, you can make stuff up on yeah and again i suppose that's the thing is it's another another example all the savage world settings are like that they all they're all full of ideas aren't they because they are so kind of big and colorful you know it's very very easy to come up with ideas I wanted to mention this one as well, because when we did the one shot, which is, I, I, I want to put it on record. I think this is the best title that I've ever come up with. It's uh, Wages of Fear, of Fear, as in uh, Serpent. Um, and uh, it it's essentially the story of Sorcerer, or Wages of Fear, where you had to accompany a volatile serpent oil uh, across Wales uh, in a great big explosive tanker. And there was usage dice that steadily depleting as uh, it was ambushed by Nazi nuns and all this uh, cultists and everything. But what <laughs> spun the nuns. game? That's all you need, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what um, <laughs> what made it, that game interest, that one shot interesting, is the use of the adventure cards, mm. which I think are, they were just like an add on to the kickstarter originally the kickstarter when they did the adventure edition but i think they're great they make a real difference to do it so where the these work is each player gets one 
and in addition to their bennies. And it may just give them a little bit of an edge that they can play at any time during the uh, session. So there's things like uh, it bringing the cavalry. So there's a reason why help comes to to support the play characters and they are in need, that kind of thing. And we've used those in Necessary Evil as well, haven't we? They're quite exciting, aren't they? As a player, when you get your adventure card for the session, you think, oh, that's this. is going to be good. Or is it going to be completely useless? Or is it good, but it's only going to be good if a certain context or certain situation arises, which may or may not arise, that kind of thing? Yeah, if you're playing Savage Worlds and you haven't got an adventure deck, I urge you to uh, get hold of one because it does make a great addition to the game. And the one that we had with uh, the volatile tanker, Neil Benson's character uh, rode it into the uh, serpent uh, cultist uh, temple um, with the intention of uh, exploding <laughs> it in there, but not, forgetting that everybody was still on board. So when it exploded, it took every, it was a TPK, wasn't it? Everybody was killed because of his actions. Yeah, apart he from to kill, it, kill everyone apart from himself. He managed to do a TPK when he was a player, never mind a game. Yeah. <laughs> <Did> well <laughs> TPK. Apart from him, who had in a card from the adventure deck that says you walk away unharmed uh, from a situation. So <laughs> that was a, a great end to the, uh, a fitting end to the, the, the one shot, I think. Great stuff. Right, let's uh, roll this for the last time. Okay, last but not least is make your own setting because mm. that has been yeah. very much our experience over the last four years, hasn't it? As well as playing these settings that we've mentioned is either Daily Dwarf creating his 2000 AD settings. I've created a Strontium Dog uh, one-shot using Savage Worlds, but it is possible to use the components yeah. to create your you own. Planet of the Apes as well, haven't you? Planet of the Apes, yeah. Kong, Kong and the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, that is perfect. It is perfect system for that kind of thing. Again, initially I wasn't, I wasn't so sure, but the more I played it, the more I think if you were going to create something. And he said, I said this about fate. This, this was the, one of those kind of weird tussles that's gone on in my head. That initially I thought fate was the perfect system to replicate because we did the Robin Sherwood thing, didn't we? And it's fate yeah. seemed like a perfect thing to replicate TV shows. But I don't know if Savage Worlds might be better because Savage Worlds just give you a bit more to sort of work with, I think. That's the that's the trick with Savage Worlds. There's even though initially when you look at it, you think, Oh, like you said, there's a lot of bits, there's a lot of this, a lot of that, a lot of edges, a lot of hindrances. Oh, you know. But actually in the long run, it makes it a bit better maybe for devising stuff you know if i was going to do a tv show now maybe it'd be savage world and not fake that i would turn to yeah because there's just a bit more going on in it a bit more detail there that you can pick out and use i think yeah quite a few more options to make isn't there if you mm. want to build up particular yeah. scenes or particular situations yeah. even even though those options at first when you read the rules those options at first seem a bit a bit bewildering, a bit much, and a bit there's a bit too many of them. But once you understand it, like you said, the system mastery thing. Once you understand the system, you think, ah, oh, actually, this there's much more here to work with than in other games. Absolutely, and I remember when we had the discussion a few years ago, looking at Blake Seven and trying to work out 
how would you do Blake Seven? I know that we talked about in the pub. So you'll have to imagine the toilet door opening and closing. <laughs> so um, going human on the jukebox. <laughs> <laughs> we, we talked about actually this is the ideal way of doing it, isn't it? Because when we talked about Blake Seven, we said that the system would need to reflect the personalities of the characters that are yeah. in there. Mm. And that's what it does well, isn't it? The edges and hindrances give you a yeah. quick descriptor of how that work. And in some cases, give some mechanical benefit or hindrance. But it is a good way of describing who the character is. And the hindrances are good in the way they work because the, the way it says you should do them is that they're a role-playing tool, obviously. But also, if you act, if you put yourself in jeopardy because of a hindrance, you're supposed to win a Benny, aren't you? You can yeah. win a Benny which, you know, for, for a re-roll. So it has a simple mechanic, whereas I think in fact with a trouble thing, it, I don't know, it it's, sounds all right in principle, but then in play it gets a bit bit messy and a bit complicated and a bit fiddly, whereas in uh, Savage Worlds there is it's a simple mechanic. You know, my, my hindrance is I'm greedy, therefore if I uh, go for try and get, get some money and put myself at risk, then you might get a benefit because you're acting along with your hindrance. And that that's just a nice simple mechanic that works very well, I think. And you, and you can quite quickly, and this is what I found doing Planet of the Apes, for example, is look at the character types and apply uh, a hindrance and edge to it. So with um, Blake Savage on Villa would be yellow, wouldn't it? Because that's a hindrance if you're yellow and uh yeah, and yeah it would, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, more susceptible yeah. to fear and uh, intimidation. And Avon, Avon would have maybe ruthless and uh, greedy, that kind of thing. Yeah. And you can also have um, quick descriptors like quirks, can't you? So, for example, with Avon, you could have sardonic wit just as a descriptor. Yeah, yeah as a quirk. Yeah. quirk. Yeah. I must admit it's quite appealing. Now, maybe it's one for the future. Maybe next uh, next year um, I might do a, a Blake Seven Savage Worlds might be the thing to do definitely definitely and uh maybe we could run it in the pub <laughs> yeah run it in the pub <laughs> slamming doors and music yeah <laughs> see one solution of course could be the sean connery method so you know how sean connery he has films with a wig and films without a wig yeah yeah <laughs> so you know you've got Hunt for a Red October, he has a wig. Has a wig. Zardos doesn't have a wig. No, no wig. No wig, but a mankini. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's what we do at the start of each episode, is that we say up front, this is a wig or no wig. So if it... <laughs> wig, wig being... In pub. the pub, yeah. Wig, wigs in the pub? Why is a wig in the pub? Wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't no wig... Well, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe if you were going to the pub. Is that because if you had a wig and you were going to the pub, you would put the wig on? Yeah. You were going to the pub. Yeah. Make an effort. Or is, it the case, or is it the case that in the pub we're more relaxed and therefore the wig comes off because it's not, not kind of formal? I, th- I think I'd wear the wig in the pub in the snug. Wig in the pub? Yeah. But no wig when it's not in the pub. Yeah. So I'll just, I'll just say it at the start. I won't make a big deal of it. This is a no wig episode. So this is a no wig episode. We don't have to yeah. make the effort. Oh, this, this is a wig episode. Like a wig warning. 
Yeah, wig one. Wig episode means there might be a toilet door slamming or the pub yeah. dog barking or, or a strange fellow coming in into the snug looking around, putting us off. Because I mean, these things happen. I don't want to alarm you, but we're on Zoom now. I'm not even wearing trousers. <laughs> See you later. The thing with the criticism of the pub, the criticism of the pub, it's quite a dangerous environment for street people. Should appreciate it more, I think. It's full of risk, isn't it? The pub, yeah. really. You know, yeah. all sorts of things can happen in a pub. So, really, people should appreciate the risks we're going to to give them a bit of atmos on the podcast. <laughs> Cheers, Blythe. See you in a bit. Goodbye. Appendix G. Welcome to Appendix G, the part of the podcast where we invite the Grog Squad to build an ever-expanding list of collectible series of influences on our gaming. And this time I'm inviting a member of the uh, Australian division uh, to the uh, the microphone. Welcome to Michael Butler over in Oz. How are you doing? Uh, G'day, Dirk. I'm very well. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's great to have you on. And um, just tell us what you're going to be uh, talking about uh, for the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Well, only the greatest coin book ever written, by which, of course, I mean Watchmen, uh, the 1986 um, opus by by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Um, it's the only graphic novel to ever win a Hugo, and it's also the only graphic novel to be on Time's list of the 100 best English language novels from 1923 to the present. I didn't know cool that. that. I didn't know that. <laughs> and how did you no, first encounter it? I've got my copy here that I got back in, I think it was 1988. Did you read the comics first or did you pick up the collected volumes? Yeah, no, my friend Gary, I was still in high school at the time, in year 12, and my friend Gary uh, started picking up a came out towards the end of 86. And uh, we tended to share our comics and we were just uh, just loving it. I, I picked up the collected edition uh, as soon as it was published and uh, – yeah, had a, I think a really big impact on 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 the industry um, and on a, a lot of readers as well. It's uh, it sort of published during that crest of of dark comics. I mean, in '85, um, it was all four color crisis, something the Secret Wars. Then in '86, we got Batman: The Dark Knight and Mouse and Watchmen. So a real change in mood or a new stream opened up at least. Absolutely. I mean, I remember being struck by it when I first read it and i seem to remember around the time it was being conflated with the emergence of acid house which came out at the same time because of the smiley face uh, i was uh, i was oblivious to that i'm afraid um i, I think it, there was just a general shift and if you're looking at the games too i mean i, I did a, a quick look on wikipedia in 85 we had notably pendragon dc heroes and judge dread and then in 86 uh was our warhammer 2300 ad uh, and gurps um, and 87 was Ars Magica. So again, there's a real, a real thread of, and I think it was the 80s, right? That uh, the the darkness and the bleakness of that decade sort of crashing into the neon lights and all the all the glitz and glamour, and we got things like Watchmen that sort of used one to interrogate the other. Reading again, uh, I was very much struck about how dense and rich it actually is. For those people who don't. Uh, who haven't experienced Watchmen? There must be people out there. You give us a quick uh, potted uh, summary of what, sure. what the story, if you can. Sure. Well, it's yeah. <laughs> well, it's basically a detective story, and it's set in uh, an alternate uh, alternate history mid uh, mid eighties, 
where there were superheroes uh, sort of from about 1938 onwards, but um, only one of them has actual superpowers. The rest of them were just uh, you know, costumed vigilantes. John Osterman, uh, a.k.a. Dr. Manhattan, was uh, created in a, uh, a nuclear experiment and he has control over matter at a fundamental level and he basically becomes America's strategic superpower weapon. Uh, so America dominates the world. Uh, Nixon has been president uh, since 1971. Watergate never happened. And the world is just a, a grim and big place. But it, it opens with the murder of a, uh, a government-sanctioned superhero, one of the few remaining, um, the comedian. Uh, and one of his former colleagues, uh, the infamous Rorschach, sets about investigating because he thinks that somebody's out there killing all of the, uh, the former masked heroes. So he, he sets off to warn Dr. Manhattan, his former partner, um, Night Owl, Dan Dryberg, and um, the Silk Spectre. Sally, Sally Jupiter, Sally, I can't pronounce the Polish name. Um, and as they begin investigating, they discover uh, a large conspiracy that leads them to uh, shocking and world-changing uh, world uh, revelations. But I think really it's a story about, uh, and there's various accounts about what sort of person will become a superhero. Uh, and the answer in short is, I guess, a crazy person. Um, and what sort of a world they would make uh, and, and what their... The, the sort of impact that people like that can have on the world and and, uh, and society around them. And there's, uh, are we going to give away the ending? Let's not give away the ending. But uh, I think it's it's also about you know people's belief in how they shape their destinies, and even even the villain at the end who believes he's done everything uh, for the right reasons to to help humanity, uh, having caused a terrible calamity. Even he at the end turns around to a higher power and says, well. I did the right thing, didn't I? It all turned out okay in the end, uh, to which uh, uh, Dr. Manhattan says, well, nothing ever ends. So even then, even the greatest among us still have, have feet of clay, and I think there's there's good stuff we can get out of that for writing fiction and also you know, writing and running games. Absolutely. That was a great uh, summary of it. And it has to be said that the way that it's composed the artistry of um, how the frames are constructed I think that's the bit that uh, strikes you again when rereading it and um, the way that it's composed is just uh, fantastic isn't it it's very it's very dense you know it really really does reward multiple readings uh, famously it uses a nine panel grid on every page uh, and that was because they wanted it to uh, Gibbons and Moore wanted it to look distinct they wanted any page to be recognisably a page from Watchmen and uh, Alan Moore was of the opinion that basically all superhero characters, if you took off their hair, they would all look the same. They were all drawn in the same way. So uh, um, there was great care taken to make sure that all the characters looked very, very different. Um, uh, Gibbons used a very apparently a stiff, um, a, a stiff pen to draw them rather than having a line to give them different, different line weights and thicknesses. So the book has a very, a really distinctive look. And he makes great use of structure the cover is always in the first panel of the book uh, issue five is perfectly symmetrical the opening spread is, is symmetrical if you fold back through the pages you'll see the first page echoes the last page and so on and so on all the way through but packed into all of that is, is a huge amount of visual detail uh, and a lot of recurring visual motifs like the the famous you know blood splodge on the on the uh on the uh, uh the comedian's badge um that that reappears throughout um I mean, I first noticed it. There's a, a psychologist who's talking to Rorschach. To Rorschach, a, a drop of ink falls out of his, his fountain pen. 
it forms that shape and that, that shape recurs. There's um, uh, the smiling face uh, reoccurs. The little the little plugs on the on the spark hydrants. If you turn it, if you look at them upside down, they are the smiley face. And, and again, that's it, it. It creates a visual consistency. But I think they're all good little techniques that we can use in games to really reinforce the you know a mood or, or a part of the world. And before we get onto the game, I wanted to mention as well that it's interspersed, isn't it, by what could be described as handouts of articles <laughs> that uh, yes. give further depth to the world and um, you know give you give you a little hint of what how this alternate universe works. Yeah, they, they're quite brilliant. There's extracts from um, you know, biographies of retired heroes. Um, uh, one of the characters, Night Owl, who's kind of like Batman. Um, and they're all based on on the characters from Charlton Comics, uh, which had gone out of business, I think, in 84 or 85. Um, but he was not very interested in, in birds. And so there's a section from a, a, apparently from a textbook on ornithology talking about owls and how they, how they act and respond. And that directly parallels the way he acts and responds. There's a, a whole separate story, um, you know, the Tales of the Black Galleon. It's a, a pirate horror comic, and the the character, the story there, is a direct mirror for one of the other characters uh, going through the story as well, and the, the things that they do to to get through the situations they find themselves in. Really, really clever stuff, and it's a, it's a way of adding depth without, I guess, having characters just with a massive exposition dumps. Absolutely. Uh, apparently it's driven by the fact that they're having a hard time selling ads, so they had extra pages to fill. <laughs> Is that so? Uh, mm. Well, there you go. That's, that's a great nugget. And uh, we, we mentioned gaming, and uh, it'd be interesting to know about your experience of playing uh, superhero games and what kind of influence Watchmen has had on your gaming. Mm. Well, the first big campaign I ever ran was Champions, and I... I can remember seeing an ad for Champions first edition in Dragon Magazine, and I was not particularly a comic book reader at the time, but I just loved the idea of you know, punching people through walls and making presence attacks and, and all the crazy stuff that went, that went with it. So um, I duly picked up a copy of Champions, um, and and yeah, ran a game that uh, it ran for I think the last two years I was in high school, and then I went to America for a year, and the lads still at home in Oz uh, kept it going, and it was um, you know running when I got back. Um, and it's just a just a, a great fun game. I think the influence of, of Watchmen on that was just to to make the storylines a bit darker. Uh, there's a, <laughs> Champions is a really four color game. It's uh, you know very much cast in that vein. But you know we saw a, a lot of superhero games started to turn as well. But some of the better stuff for DC drew on on the on the different different moods that they were you know, uh, that Watchmen was was uh, communicating. Uh, I think Vertigo. Comics had started then, and, and again, we we're getting those those different influences. So by the time I'd really begun to appreciate Watchmen, I think my my superhero gaming days were, were largely over. But I think, um, for anybody who's running a superhero game, um, there's a lot you can pull from it in terms of just ca- constructing your characters and having characters and their powers and costumes and, and attitudes and, and and alliances and rivalries, um, reflecting who they are and, and helping you to tell the story. Yeah, and rereading it for the purposes of this, I'd forgotten how much of that early part is driven by the investigation, um, it, very much so. I mean, it loses its way a little bit, that uh, drive, doesn't it, uh, as uh, more and more things start to weave into it. But it, it 
for an investigation uh, game, this uh, is uh, yeah some great little moments and great things that you could use as clues as well and uh, and, and set pieces. Who was at the funeral? That that's always a good source of leads, uh, and just the whole notion of one seemingly innocuous event that the police don't want to investigate because there's a lot of other crimes, and then one interested person picks it up and and gradually unpicks it. Um, you know, the villain actually tips his hand quite early uh, if you've got an eye for it. Um, but all the characters fall for his ruse. But even calling him a villain is is not entirely fair. And I think that notion of every character is, can be a villain, can be a hero. I mean, Rorschach, the, 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 the Rorschach, Rorschach ink plot mask is, a, um, on one hand, a fearless defender of the truth who refuses to compromise in the face of mind-bending horrors and evil. On the other hand, he's a psychotic vigilante who, <laughs> you know, who who does uh, terrible, unspeakable things. And I think those are all good things that you can weave into, particularly a superhero game, uh, to to get the mood to fit the story you're telling. Yeah, and I like I like the idea as well of bringing characters out of uh, retirement. So you could get your old uh, champions characters from the eighties and uh, circle them up again. Well, gosh, if we have the character sheets, so I do remember um, I got a letter when I was in America from uh, one of the lads who played Marauder. He was sort of a power suit guy, and uh, he said, uh, uh, "Here's my character sheet. I can't tell you how I made him. The co- calculations are all too complicated." Which is <laughs> Champions in a nutshell, really. Um, but I think it's it's a really clever game that it cuts back. I'm talking about bringing characters out of retirement, it, it it cuts back and forward in time. So we see some of the characters who are now retired or, or deceased uh, in, in their prime and making making the decisions that have a big influence on um, on current events. And I think for, again for an investigative scenario, um, not just bringing characters out of retirement, but you know, finding old diaries. Uh, talking to former colleagues, finding out the truth about things that really happened, and there's a, you know, a, a, a central truth about one of the characters that that uh, is again hinted at and, and is only revealed towards the end. That makes, you know, when it's revealed, it makes uh, a great deal of sense of of, of, every, of a lot of other things that have been in the story. So, delving into the past and and bringing it forward however you can, I think, can be a really, uh, really effective and probably, well, certainly in my game, something I don't do enough. I don't know. Maybe you do it heaps in yours. Uh, not particularly, no. I, I find um, I, I'd forgotten as well what a great character Dr. Manhattan is. Uh, he, he has uh, great qualities. And, and his first appearance, even in a comic book, it's quite awe-inspiring, isn't it, when you realise uh, what a, uh, a significant uh, uh, character he is and uh, influence on the world. Yeah, he's also a really good example of how uh, he he he's neutralised in part. Um, it's a bit like a classic DC, uh, you know, DC uh, superheroes and villains tend to be much more powerful than Marvel ones, and that's why the great DC villains are guys like Lex Luthor, no superpowers, uh, you know, but they 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 outthink or they outfox their their opponents, and that's exactly what happens to you know, the, the 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 plot to neutralise Doctor Manhattan is not to you know punch him through a wall; it's to Make him decide to to not intervene, um, and it's, you know, very very uh, it's not a bad plan, and it, it nearly works. <laughs> it nearly works, except one of the one of the you know, in the game terms, one of the player characters talks him out of it, which would be a you know a, a great situation to put a player in where you know the the one person who can 
help you know save the day couldn't be bothered and how do you convince them to be to take an interest in what's going on um yeah great fodder and great great scene setting but i think the other thing for games is that um it really highlights to me the the value of preparation and 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 detail all that richness that we were talking about earlier and how 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 absorbing it makes it i think there's a, a lot of um i'll get up on my soapbox just for a moment there's a lot of uh the flavor in rpgs tends to be you know very very light uh, very very light preparation and improv and just go with it let your players help you tell the story and and that's great and you know i think most of us know how to do that but i think reading watchmen it really drove home to me just the value you can get from deep preparation and, and a really deep understanding of your material and that doesn't mean clobbering your players with uh, reams of exposition but um you know, it's like a musician improvising. You have to know how to play your instrument really well before you can improvise well. Uh, and I think the lesson for game is is that if you if you know your system well and if you know your setting well, then that that makes it easy for you to have those you know light preparation improvised sessions because you've got a very deep well of material that you're drawing on. Oh, that's a good soapbox to be on because uh, yeah, I must admit that I belong to the. Um, to the thing of uh, light prep and uh, just uh, think, thinking on your feet. But I always respect and enjoy uh, people who put that level of depth into it because you always think that there's something more to discover. Hmm. Well, it's like um, it gives you, you know, uh, more notes to play, more colours to paint with, you know, if you if you – if you really know a game in a setting well, then it, it becomes it becomes a lot easier, and the games you know, you, you, it makes it easy to improvise it, it from the start. Um, and I think it also gives you a chance, you know, in that balancing game between telling a story and letting the players have their head. Um, the trick is to to have a story emerge out of letting the players have their head, and if you can drop in those subtle recurring motifs and 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 deep motivations for characters, and I think that makes it a lot easier for that those sorts of things and those storylines and you know those great campaign moments to emerge because then the players will look back and say, oh, that's what that thing was all about, or um, you know using motifs to help create uh, you know, to help create uh, different moods as you go through different stages of your campaign. I think can be really really effective. Yeah, very much so. Let's talk about system um, in terms of. Uh, superhero system you mentioned uh, champion uh, what what kind of system would you uh, go for for uh, a watchman type campaign yeah I, I i i wouldn't use champions i think it's i think it's it's i, I know there's some people who disagree with me violent on this but i think it is exactly the wrong kind of system for superheroes because it's very detailed you know um you know, turn by turn tracking your movement rates and endurance and expenditures. I, I don't think that's what you want. I played an advanced Marvel superheroes game for about a year when I was in America. That was a really good system because it was light and flexible. Um, I think Savage Worlds would probably be my pick today. And I haven't looked at some of the dedicated systems like mutants and masterminds. I ran some villains and vigilantes. That was a really good system. Probably a bit dated now, but I'd probably I'd probably plump for. Um, I think Savage would be the way to go. Because and what you, you want? Th- I think you want something that's fast and fluid. Yeah, and so do you think that's what it would bring to a scenario such as uh, Watchmen, a world such as Watchmen? Well, I think it would let you really concentrate on on the story. It's you know, Watchmen is not a story about punching people through brick walls. I don't think any 
does anybody get punched through a brick wall? I can't remember. But it's not really a story about because part of the point of the story is that superpowers can't solve the world, can't save the world. They can't solve all the problems because the problems come from people being people, even if they're you know can control matter at a subatomic level. Um, so I think a system that gets out of the way, and it's got I think Savage has enough crunch, so you can have you know, fun powers that do specific things, and 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 uh, you can have each character and nicely differentiated in that way. And I think Savage handles investigations um, you know, fairly well. So you just want something out of Tracy because I think the focus in a, in a for me, uh, a Watchmen-inspired story would be one that really focused on on characters and interactions with each other and how, the, how they are shaping the world and how the world is shaping them. Yeah, I think with uh, edges and hindrances, it gives you some of those uh, vulnerabilities, wouldn't it, as well, uh, built into mm-hmm. some of the characters, definitely. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, I guess it was in the 80s that we started to see games like like uh, you know, Champions and Hero System games and, and GURPS, and I mean, even earlier, I know, um, even TFT and various other games had that idea of having you know, uh, advantages and disadvantages and flaws and hindrances. Um, but it's a great way to build a character, and it's especially appropriate for um, you know, for superheroes. And it's not just you know I'm weak to kryptonite, or the the ring doesn't affect things that are yellow. Um, you know, psychological disadvantages are, are are much better, and that's that's kind of how uh, again those really powerful villains uh, can bring really powerful heroes low because they understand you know what makes them tick. I mean, and and it provides weaknesses to beat the villains too. There's a, a yeah the, the Superman storyline where Lex Luthor uh, hires an investigator who comes back to him and says, yeah, um, Clark Kent is Superman. And Luthor just refuses to believe him, flat out. Couldn't be. Because if because if you had that power, why would you hang around pretending to be a lowly, a lowly reporter? So, you know, using – and for characters, it's tremendously satisfying to, uh, I think, you know, discover a, a villain's sort of psychological weakness and turn it against them. That's a real great role-playing achievement if you can, uh, if you can bring it off in a game. Yeah, that that's that's so true. So, Watchmen, uh, Michael, is it last final uh, pitch? Is there anything else that you wanted to add to encourage people to go out there and uh, discover it or rediscover Watchmen? Oh gosh, um, let me uh, let me have a think. Uh, I, I think, well, just in terms of the gaming side, I think put the characters at the forefront and and really think about who your characters are and why they're doing what they're doing and and. Even if a character is a broad stereotype, it's good to personalise and make them uh, a real individual. Um, but I think in terms of just getting involved with the source material, it's 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 kind of a foundational text of a lot of of a lot of what followed. Um, the movie controversial. Some people didn't like it. I quite enjoyed it. Uh, I, I liked seeing it on screen. I think uh, uh, Zack Snyder did a. a a workmanlike job with it, and I, I, I watch it periodically, and I, I, I really, really enjoy it. And I think, um, you know, if you don't want to sit down and read the book, uh, watch the, watch the movie. It's, it's, I enjoyed it, but, but just read the book. Just read it. Just read it. You won't regret it. If, if you don't like it, you can hit me up on the Discord <laughs> and tell me why. But it's, and it is definitely uh, one to reread. So if you read it back in the day, uh, yeah, jump in again, and you, I guarantee, you'll be floored by, yeah, just, just what a masterpiece it is. Well, thank you very much, Michael. That was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. I'll get me caught.
Welcome to the end of the podcast. This is the bit where we're heading towards the door. We've got our coats on. We won't feel the benefits. Start getting cold out there, eh? Uh, but nevertheless, we're still doing a bit of closing time chatter about the things that are occupying our thoughts at the moment. Blythe, what's occupying your thoughts at the moment? Uh, well, a game I recently acquired and recently played that intrigued me for a while is the game Cult, the horror role-playing game Cult. When did that come out? Is that a 90s game? It's a 90s game, yeah. Um, and it's very controversial because it's it's horror, but it but it, it has all these kind of warnings attached to it about sexual stuff and stuff like that that be kind of a bit off-putting. You, you know, you part of me thinks, really, do I want, do I want all that? It's well, hard work. The new one, um, which is based around, it's a Powered by the Apocalypse type revamp of it, um, and it's the one that I recently purchased and played at Owlbear for the first time. So I've had an experience of it. And uh, I must admit, from, from that pitch that he's just given, having the sexy stuff in, it puts me off. You're going to have to do more yeah. work to yeah. kind of appeal yeah. to me. Go on. What, what's, it, what's it got that is going to make me want to play? Well, it's a bit like the, the, the idea behind it. I didn't really know anything about it. When I signed up to play the Elba, I, I just thought, well, yeah, that sounds good. Game person running it, run games before, very good. So I thought, yeah, it's a, it's a, a winner, that one. But I suppose it's a bit like Hellraiser meets The Matrix. So the idea behind it is it's kind of modern day. And people probably write it again and say I'm wrong, but the basic, very basic idea of it is that people were once kind of divine beings and you've been tricked into this illusory world. The world's kind of an illusion. There are these kind of weird angels and demonic kind of characters that are propping up this illusion and your characters are people who started to see through it. That's that's the that's the very basic gist. There is a lot more setting to it, and I haven't read all the settings, so I'm not purporting to be some kind of expert. No, no, no I never purport to be an expert on role-playing. <laughs> but but you know, I, I've not read it all. Um, so there's quite a bit of detail. I, I, I'd quite fancy running some, but I don't think I'd run it till next year. I need to really have some time to get my head around it. Um, and it does it does have these. I suppose it's like anything. It's it's like a bit. It's kind of dialable in that you can dial up the unpleasant stuff in it, uh, but you can also dial it down a bit. You know. So the game we played at, at Alba, there was horror in it. There was a bit of player versus player, and it was quite quite it's quite good fun. There was horror in it, um, grisly murder scene, all those kind of things. But it didn't have you know no children got hurt and no there was nothing sexual in it nothing like that but some of the scenarios are do go into those areas and i know what you mean i, I look at them and think not not sure you have to be very careful if you wanted to introduce some of those things in it there's the one thing it does for, for example one thing it does um i've got some of the free scenarios and one thing it does is it gives characters sort of backgrounds that are quite traumatic and then the part of horror is that those backgrounds are exploited and, and therefore you know something like a suicide in your family history is then exploited in the horror that's one of the concepts that goes on in the game and of course you realize that be quite 
a tricky thing, wouldn't it? Particularly at a convention to, to run. You know, you'd have to be careful that you just pitch it right, I suppose. But it's quite it's quite an interesting game. It's kind of based on Gnosticism as well. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. The person running the the game, uh, Sue Sue Savage, gave me a bit of a I've had a bit of a chat with her afterwards, and I said it's powered by the apocalypse, but uses 2d10 rather than 2d6 and i said that isn't like a weird thing to do but she said that it's based on gnosticism and the number 10 is like a kind of significant uh, number yeah, of course, so they've yeah. they gone for that and I, I spent some of elba afterwards reading up on gnosticism and it it's kind of like early christian yeah. stuff like weird kind of cult stuff pop, that pop cult cult stuff so, yeah that kind of thing so yeah. it's kind of interesting the setting is interesting yeah yeah no, I think Gnostic Hellraiser meets Matrix. I'm sixty percent there. I was ten, <laughs> I was ten percent at the start. I'm sixty yeah. percent there. You have to do some more yeah. work, I think. But it sounds intriguing. Yeah, there's something I, I think I'm going to give it a bit more, read a bit more, and then at some point maybe next year might might try and run some because it it was good fun. It was great, Albert. It was good fun. It was it was quite it got all quite grisly and horrific. <laughs> I won't go in, only to details because it might she may run it again somewhere and spoil things, but it was it was a lot of fun actually. The thing I was going to um, close on was I think it related to something that you just said about background. You know, we're at that point of the year, and um, for some reason we follow the um, new term approach new term and new games are coming up aren't they because some have yeah. finished over summer and we started new things and we started pirate sidrenix and um we're about to start a big conan campaign which i'm very much looking forward to both of those systems use background for characters to build up the characters and um sam vale who's playing with us on Conan has asked a question how much background do you want shall I read what he said and then we can have a discussion All right. go alright how much background bobbins do we need for our characters in the way of interlinked history and whatnot? I know some games masters prefer a sentence or two others a fully realised family history I strongly suspect Dirk to be in the first camp exclamation mark I would like to try and get a little more character interaction role-playing into the game, though. Speeding from scene to scene is great, but sometimes having a breather is great too. So it made me it made me wonder where the where, where is it that the role-playing is? So increasingly we're seeing, aren't we, that the role-playing seems to be in the background of characters that somehow calling back and drawing out aspects of the character background is where role-playing inhabits. But I'm not sure it, it always is, is it? No. Uh, yeah, it's always a tricky thing, isn't it, the background? Because well, these days, I think a long time ago I wouldn't have agreed with this, but these days I quite like the idea of developing your background as you play, maybe in the first few slash sessions. So you have a, have a vague idea of your background, but you can also develop that as you play you know, mixture of the two. I think that sometimes I've come up with a character background that's quite detailed. And then as the games, as the campaigns progressed, I've kind of fallen out in love with the character a bit because the background's not, in the end, not quite what I wanted or quite fit with the campaign. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I and think I, 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 quite, I quite like the idea of it 
develops as you the first few sessions you can kind of develop your character your character might do something in one of the early sessions and you might go ah right okay they've, they've done this i'm going to build that into their background in a way it's quite a good way of doing it yeah i i agree i think sometimes um, because there is a lot of effort front loading and uh, background stuff when you hit the table very often it has no relevance it's like the pirates of drinks one isn't it? it was very detailed and I enjoyed it and it did establish some relationships with the different characters but when we played that first session it didn't really come into play did it we kind of bounced off each other because we all had roles yeah. within the ship yeah. and it's those roles within the ship that determined our relationship with each other more than what we'd established up front and also what i deliberately did with pirates of Drenax is in Traveller, you can have allies. You, as part of character creation, you get contacts and allies, don't you? And what I said to you is, whilst when you got an enemy, I, I've come up with an enemy, because that, that seems fair, that I would come up with the enemy. But when you've had allies and contacts, what I've said is you can hold those allies and contacts as unnamed allies and contacts and then play them in the, the game. So if you go to a planet and you've got a spare ally slot, you can say, ah, right, I'm going to have an ally here. I know someone here. And that is a way of developing a bit of your background in play, so to speak. And I kind of did that deliberately because I think it's a better way of doing it than deciding on an ally in character creation, coming up with some NPC in character creation that ultimately might be of no interest or no use during the game. Whereas I think you've all got one or two ally slots that you can play, like almost like a card. You can go, right, okay, we're going to such a planet. I've got an ally who works in the starport, you know, that kind of thing. And you, once you've used it, you've used it. But that kind of thing is, is a way of developing character background during the game. Yeah. I think as well that um, character can emerge from action as well. And I think that is the spirit of Conan, even though it goes to great length in doing your background and where you've come from and how you've got the skills that you have and your life path and that kind of thing. Really, it is, you know, it says in the GM advice that it is, you know, action to action. And that's where the role playing emerges from, you know, how you respond to events happening around you. So I hope I don't disappoint uh, Sam, but uh, there isn't going to be much time for a breather in this uh, campaign, but I might, (laughs) I might put some earlier adventures before we go headlong into um, the ultimate campaign, The Shadow of the Sorcerer, which is the pre-written campaign that I'm doing from Modifius. The best thing about this, though, it, it is in a breakneck uh, pace. It does really pace it campaign. goes all across the uh, world as, you know, high adventure wherever you turn. But the best thing about it, for me, is that it's justified the fact that over lockdown I bought all those splat books because it encourages you to get to the background of the different books and you think, oh, I've got that one. Oh, yes. <laughs> it was a mad, it lockdown, was, mad lockdown purchases. Yeah. We've <laughs> all done it. Corner the, corner the adventurer. I have that one. I will. Uh, I feel like I've justified uh, paying for it. Yeah. Well, I feel like that with Pirates of Drinax because I've got lots of travel, but I've got the uh, Companion, I've got the Aliens of Chartered Space, I've got the High Guard, I've got the uh, Catalog and all that. And that's a bit like that. Although you don't although you don't need those extra books to play the campaign, the, there is the odd spaceship or thing dropped in the campaign where you go, ah, you do need the, uh, you know, Aliens of Chartered Space Volume 2 for this. <laughs> I have that. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's been justified all this money I've Good, we've got loads of exciting stuff coming up, haven't we, over the next uh, few months after the uh, summer lull. So I'm looking forward to that. See you later, Blythe. See ya. Issues my round. Thanks to Christian and Michael for their contribution to this episode. I really enjoyed putting this together, as I think Savage Worlds is my current go-to system, and our Wednesday group is stronger than ever. We've just completed a great strontium dog, 2000 AD prog devised by Daily Dwarf. He's taking it to Grogme, which is at Manchester and online this year and the weekend of the 11th of November 2022. There's a loose theme of prog meet with games, scenarios and characters based on ideas from progressive rock and in some cases the progs of 2000 AD. I'm going for Titan Effect inspired by The Sentinel, an album by Scottish group Palace. Search, search and terminate. We have read your mind. You are an enemy of the state. If you want to find out more about the virtual grog meet that's running at the same time as the face-to-face one, then follow the page over at thegrognardfiles.com. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you've heard, then write a review. We really do respond to the feedback. We took it really seriously, the uh, comment about recording in the pub. And it'll help us determine the content and approach in the future. Please pass it on if you enjoy it. Or if you're able to, throw some coins in the Patreon tip jar. I'm off for a hot toddy and a lie down. Until next time, adios amigos. Adios.